All glory be to Christ, our King. Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we ask you in the name of Christ, by the aid of your Holy Spirit, that you would help your people today. We do not need to hear a word from man. We need to hear the word of the living God. Lord, it's been a long and rough week for many of us. And we come here as a place of refuge and solace. That you would help us, O oh God, to hear your word rightly. And that we wouldn't simply be hearers of your word, but we would be doers also. Help us, O oh God, as we leave this place, saying it was good to be in the house of the Lord, and all glory be to Christ our King. And all of God's people said, Amen. The question before us today is, how do you respond to trials and tribulations in your life? That's an honest question before us today. And is our reactions actually biblical? Or are our reactions simply natural, out of the physical, maybe even fleshly? Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of an era gone by, said this about trials. Quote, many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. Many men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. And what he meant by this is this, is that our lives are actually shaped by the trials and tribulations and difficulties that we experience. And for us who live in America or in the West, many times when we go through great difficulty or adversity in our flesh, we automatically say, why me? Why is this happening to me? The question is, why shouldn't it happen to you? What makes you or I so special that we get to avoid all adversity in this life? That's not real life. And so what Spurgeon meant is these tribulations shape us into who we are. And likewise, as Christians who go through difficulty, just like non-Christians, but our difficulties should shape us more into the image of Christ. And if we go through these difficulties without any thought of Jesus, our Savior, then we're not thinking biblically. In the end, we need to embrace Jesus and hold on to Jesus and not let him go. We're in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, and this is entitled The Christian Profile. And what I mean by the word profile is the word characteristics or character. What is the Christian character? How are you to look at things? How are you to react at things? How are we to give all glory to Christ, our King? And the main point I want to get across this morning is this. Christians who persevere through great difficulty in this life for the sake of Christ Jesus. That's the key part of that sentence. For the sake of Christ Jesus have a great reward in heaven. I hope that we will keep this in mind as we go through the sermon today. In verses 12 through 19, really set up our text for today. 
in these verses, Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray all night. And then the very next morning, Jesus calls his 12 apostles or his 12 disciples unto himself. And then after that, he comes down off of the mountain and many people follow Jesus. So you not only have the disciples that Jesus has called, but you also have a general crowd. And these people come from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. And their primary goal is not that they would receive salvation, but their primary goal is to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ because they have heard about him, and it's interesting to their ears. But on top of that, they want to be healed of their physical infirmities or their maladies or their diseases. And on top of that, they want to be freed from their spiritual oppression, or we would say demon possession. And it's clear that Jesus has all power to heal all physical infirmities. And on top of that, when you add the spiritual aspect, he has all power to liberate those from spiritual oppression and possession. So we're not just dealing with a good teacher. That's what Luke is setting up for us. We're not dealing with just a good moral man. We're dealing with the Savior that God has given to his people. So now we're in verses 20 through 26. And the parallel account of Luke 6 is really Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 6, this is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Why? Because he comes off the mountain, he's in a flat or level area, and then he preaches. But this is also known as the Beatitudes. We use that language all the time, right? As we read the chapters in Matthew and in Luke. But what is actually a beatitude? A beatitude is God's promise of blessing to those who he cares for. Let me say that again. A beatitude is God's promise of blessing for those he cares for. That's very important in our sermon or text for today. In Luke's account of the Beatitudes, it's much shorter than Matthew's account. They use very similar language, but it's not exactly the same. And this is normal for that time frame. But in the Old Testament, there's covenantal language that sounds like this. If you obey Yahweh or you obey me, you're blessed. If you disobey then you're cursed. That's covenantal language. But when we think about Luke chapter 6, this is also covenantal language. It's just slightly changed. If Jesus' disciples, because that's his audience, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the midst of a mixed crowd, because there's a general crowd there that wants to see this miracle worker, this covenantal language, Jesus is saying, if you obey me, or obey the gospel, or obey God's word, you're blessed. But if you disobey the gospel and you disobey God's word, you're cursed. But he doesn't use the word curse. You see in verses 24, 25, 26, the word is what? Whoa. Whoa, it's the same idea. 
The word is just slightly changed. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about kingdom ethics. Kingdom ethics. What is kingdom ethics? Kingdom ethics means this. If you belong to the kingdom of God, then you belong to a new community. A community that has been transformed, regenerated, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you belong to that kingdom and you belong to that community, then what you believe about Jesus should dictate how you operate in this life. How you think, how you talk, how you operate, whether you want to kick the dog or cat that day. So, what we believe should be consistent with how we live, according to God's gospel and word. And if you're not a Christian today, here's the encouragement to you, is that these Beatitudes is an invitation to you of God's grace to come to God and trust in Him. That's how the Beatitudes are used. That's how Jesus is using the Beatitudes towards a general crowd. Yes, he's addressing his disciples specifically. But those who are not his disciples, it's an open invitation of grace. But it comes with requirements. So in today's sermon, there's two points that are in your bulletin. And the first point is this. Christians are blessed when their lifestyles are contrary. That's the key word. Contrary to the world's ways. In other words, they are obedient to God's word and God's gospel. Point number two, Christians will be in horror when they embrace the world's ways. They're disobedient to God's word and disobedient to God's gospel. There is horror. That's where the word woe comes from. There's danger. So I'm planning to spend most of today's sermon in the first point and then quickly go over the second point so we see this first point in verse 20 read with me again and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. When we think of the word blessed, normally we think of the word happy or fortunate. But it's much more than happy and fortunate. The word blessed in the original language is actually a technical term or a religious term for much more than that. It means that the person has God's grace upon them. That divine grace is upon this individual which results in joy. That's what the word blessed means. That they have received God's grace and they understand what they have, they've embraced that, and it results in what? Joy. In real joy. So in this first point, Jesus describes four points or four situations in which all disciples are blessed. 
They're blessed. In verses 20 through 22, here are those four items. Poor, hungry, weep or weeping, and hated. Poor comes in two forms. People are poor either financially or they're poor spiritually. In Luke's account, it seems like he's focusing or he's emphasizing the financial aspect of being poor. Those who are constantly and financially poor. They're economically depressed and destitute. They're financially bankrupt. They don't have their own resources. They cannot pull themselves out of this proverbial hole of debt. And so the Bible teaches that God has a deep concern for those who are poor and oppressed. I hope we understand that as Christians, that God cares for the poor, that God cares for those who are oppressed. For example, in Psalm 9, verse 18, Psalm 9, verse 18, it says this, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish. The idea is, in biblical times, if you are needy and poor, the culture, the society, the institution, you're, you're so low on the ladder that you're not even recognized. You're an outcast. You're on the fringes of society. And those who are poor, their hope is crushed. For example, Psalm 35, verse 10, it says this, All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. In Psalm 35, the idea is this, that God places those in authority above the people, and those who are poor and needy are to be looked after. They're to be taken care of. By who? By those who have authority. By those who have resources. And the psalmist is saying to the Lord, Lord, who is like you who's going to deliver the poor and the needy? From the strong arm of those who have authority. Who's the deliverer? God. That's the point. Those who are in authority are robbing the poor. They're crushing the hope of the needy. And God says, there's a time that's coming that that will come to an end. He will take care of the poor. God is mindful of them. God doesn't forget those who are lowly. And in Matthew's account of these Beatitudes, there's more of a spiritual emphasis. I would argue when you read the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there's a spiritual aspect to it. Why? Because of the audience. The Jews, there's a Jewish flavor. Jews are known to be religious people, moral people. But because we're in Luke, the audience is not Jewish per se in flavor, but Gentile. They're Gentiles. And so therefore, what Jesus is doing is using financial language that point to a very deep spiritual reality. Something that's real. And so the idea, the idea is this. Those who are financially poor, they have no resources of their own. They have no family to help them. They have no government to help them. Their only hope is not their neighbor. Their only hope is God. 
Now flip that idea of finances to spiritual. That's the idea that Jesus is getting to. That those who are spiritually broken, those who are spiritually oppressed, those who are spiritually destitute, their only hope is God. That's where Jesus is going with this sermon on the plain. Those who are spiritually poor, all they have is God. How do we know that? Look at the rest of verse 21. What does he say about the poor? That they get to have a Cadillac and a nice big mansion? No. He says, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus explains to his disciples that the kingdom of God belongs to people like you who are spiritually poverty-stricken. That's the idea. That the kingdom of God is for those who are spiritually destitute and those who are listening, that general crowd. That should be the cue for them to say, I see God's grace. I see this invitation of God's grace. But the question becomes, how does one enter into this kingdom? Do poor people enter the kingdom of God simply because they don't have $10? No. There are many poor people in this world that will never enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because their hope is in money. If I could just get myself out of this financial hole, then I could help myself. No. That's not the point. The one who enters the kingdom of God enters the kingdom of God because they have submitted to the king of that kingdom. They've submitted their heart to the king. They've submitted their heart to the authority of the king. They've submitted their ways to the Lord who is the king. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells young Timothy, Fight the good fight, Timothy! Don't quit, Timothy. Keep going, Timothy. Fight the good fight of what? Faith. Hold to the gospel, embrace the gospel, and never let the gospel go. And you hold on to this gospel. You fight the good fight of faith until Jesus comes back. And then the Apostle Paul says to young Timothy in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, that he, referring to Jesus, who is the blessed and the only sovereign, listen to this, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The way into the kingdom is bowing the heart to the King and to the Lord of lords. There's no other way to get into this kingdom. You can't buy your way into this kingdom. You can't do enough religious good works and good deeds to get into this kingdom. Your Baptist VIP gold membership card can't get you into this kingdom. Your baptism can't get you into the kingdom. Growing up in a Christian family can't get you into the kingdom. Your education, your money, your career can't get you into this kingdom. Your beautiful wife and your beautiful kids cannot get you into this kingdom. It is bowing the heart to the king of the kingdom. That's the only way into this kingdom. So that's what Jesus is saying. Those who are spiritually poor do not rely on religion. Those who are spiritually poor do not rely on the church. 
Those who are spiritually poor do not rely on church tradition. They don't rely on their morality, their goodness to be made right with God. They submit to the king. That's what they do. Those who are spiritually poor, their only hope is God. There's something important that we need to see here in these verses. It says here, blessed are you. He's talking about the disciples specifically. Those who are poor. Is that future tense or present tense? No, that's present tense. Those who are poor right now, you are blessed right now. With what? The kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5, that's known as the kingdom of heaven. Same kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is for those who are poverty-stricken, poverty or spiritually bankrupt. Again, their hope is God. But then if we look at verse 21, look what Jesus does here. He changes from present tense to future tense. He said, blessed are you who are hungry now, present tense, for you shall be satisfied, future tense. So Jesus is saying, even though you're hungry now, there's coming a day in the future where you will not be hungry. See, in the Old Testament, when the Bible uses the language of no drink and no food, that should give us the idea or the cue that the person that this applies to is in great need right now. They're in great need. It says, for you shall be satisfied. But if you look at verse 21 regarding not only hunger but weeping, it says, blessed are you who weep when? Now, present tense, for you shall laugh when? In the future. Many times, it makes sense to us, because this goes hand in hand, if you're poverty-stricken, you have no money, and you're hungry, don't those two ideas go together? Yes, they do. But in the case of weeping, I don't believe that it's related to being poor and hungry. Why? Because in the Bible, those who weep are not weeping, per se, because they have a lack of money. Many times in the Old Testament, the theme is they're weeping because they're suffering unjustly. They're suffering unjustly. Let me give you an example. Isaiah 32, verse 6. It's talking about the poor and the needy. And I alluded to this earlier, that those who are in authority are taking advantage of the oppressed. And it says this in Isaiah 32, verse 6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. In other words, those who are foolish, those who are, sinner, are sinners are focused on sinning. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. You hear that? There are people who are hungry and they're not being taken care of. And to deprive the thirsty of drink. So now we have food and we have drink together. What's the idea? They're being mistreated and there's a great need. Verse 7, as for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. 
He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. What is this saying? It's saying that those who are needy, they have a legitimate need. And those who can help are not helping. And all those who are in authority, their goal is to devise evil and to ruin the poor. The poor, they're already downtrodden. But that's not enough for those who are in authority. We're going to kick them down even further. So, in the Old Testament, God expects those who are in authority to take care of those who cannot help themselves. God expects those in authority to take care of the poor and the hungry and the unjust suffering. But I would argue that no government is designed to do this. No government is designed to do this. But the people of God are designed to do this. Why? Because they have the spirit of the living God. Why? Because our hearts have been changed. Why? Because we see our own spiritual need of God's grace in our lives. And we look at other human beings, not with hate, but with sympathy and love for them. So how do the poor possess the kingdom of God, which is heaven? How do those who hunger and weep, how is that reversed? How is satisfaction turned into laughter? And here's the answer to the question. By turning to God and His great care. By turning to God and His great care. No matter what Christians think on how they think what is best to take care of themselves, whatever that idea is, God cares for us much more than that. In another, in another way, we can say it like this, that God, by His gospel and His grace in Jesus Christ, is how He cares for His people. See, if we think strictly in financial terms, strictly in physical terms, strictly in material terms, then we have completely missed the point of this sermon. Spiritual needs are much greater than financial needs. And I'm not downplaying the needs of finances because we need money to buy food and take care of our families. I'm not downplaying that. But what's greater than that are those who are spiritually oppressed by sin, destitute spiritually, spiritually bankrupt, heading for hell, and they have no hope. But the Bible's clear that their only hope in that situation is God. So, Jesus says something very, very counter-cultural in verse 22. When we think about this, we actually think it's weird. It, it, it causes a sense of confusion and stress in our minds and in our hearts. So look at verse 22. He said, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. So in verse 22, he's saying, When ungodly people treat you in these four ways, you are actually blessed. What are those four ways? Hate. There are people who have a strong desire to detest you and I simply because we love Jesus Christ. 
and they detest us with hostility. I see that more and more happening on a regular occasion. There's a real hate towards those who follow Christ. Or they exclude you. Jesus is saying they exclude you. Their desire is to remove Christians or these disciples from society. You see, in the Old Testament, to be a Jew, your identity, their identity, was tied up in Jewishness. In other words, the temple. In other words, the sacrifices. In other words, the law. Because God gave them the law. And to remove the temple, to remove the law, or not being able to go into the temple to worship, you lost a big part of who you are. Because your Jewishness, your identity is tied to that religion. And so when Jesus says, they're going to exclude you for following Christ, and they kick you out of the temple, for us, we think as American Christians, no, no, no big deal. But for Jews, that's a huge deal. That's a massive deal. That's an epic deal. They lose everything. So they revile you as well. Their desire is to unjustly insult the disciples of Jesus. Or they spurn the disciples of Jesus. Spurn means slander. To slander. It's almost like psychological ostracism. We're going to keep you on the fringes of our family or our culture or our religion. They disdain the name as evil. In other words, this is a figure of speech of disdaining a person's name is looking at a person, and it's not because they have the last name Bernalis, it's because the last name Bernalis is committed to another name, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's the whole person. And they disdain the whole person. Why? Because they're committed to Christ. And here's the reason why. Here's the language. Look at your Bibles. It says, on the account of the Son of Man. That's why all these bad and evil things are going to happen to the disciples of Christ. Because on the account of the Son of Man. This is the title that Jesus uses many times in the, Old Te or in the New Testament to identify himself as the Son of God. He uses the Son of Man language. And so this is not suffering in general. This is not some nebulous general suffering. This is actually suffering for Christ. Amen. Suffering for Christ. So when you say, Pastor, I didn't have cable this week. I'm suffering for Christ in Hawaii. You are not suffering for Christ in Hawaii because you lost your cable. We're talking about suffering for Christ because you love Christ and you live for Christ and you're willing to die for Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical suffering. And he says this, that the disciples of Christ are blessed. God's favor is upon them. Divine grace is upon them when they go through this. As a matter of fact, they can have joy. It's not like they're suffering in a vacuum. But they have Christ, and they can have joy in the midst of their suffering. I think it's important to say this, that 
when we say that we're suffering, we need to make a distinction that there's a difference when we suffer because we're uncooperative, ungracious, unkind, disrespectful to our boss and our neighbors and our supervisors. There's a difference between that and living for Christ. There's a huge difference. If you say, Jesus is king, I want you to understand, that's a political statement, by the way. And number two, when you commit to that political statement, which is a biblical statement, and you say to your coworkers, I don't drink. The Bible says you can drink, by the way, but you can't get drunk. I know that just offended a lot of traditionalists. But you say, I don't want to drink. I don't want to smoke. I don't want to do drugs. I don't want to party. Oh, by the way, I'm Southern Baptist. I don't want to dance. <laughs> and then they persecute you because you don't want to live their life's ungodly, evil, sinful lifestyle. That's different than being ungracious, unkind, uncooperative, disrespectful to your boss and your neighbors. Those are two different worlds. I fear that we use the first category and think it's really the second, second category, which it's not. There's a difference with, between being late to work, taking a two-hour lunch, versus showing up early and staying late and taking only an hour lunch. What's the point, Pastor Ola? The point is this. Many times we suffer because we make unwise decisions, maybe even sinful decisions, and we think that's persecution and we're suffering for Christ. In reality, it's not. We need to use godly discernment in all of that. So the question now becomes, are you suffering as a bad witness or ambassador of Christ, or are you suffering on the account of the Son of Man? Which one is it? Those are two different worlds. Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this. And mind you, he's not on a beach drinking margaritas and Mai Tais. He's in prison suffering for Christ. He's in prison when this is written. Verse 12, Philippians 1, verse 12, he says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You hear that? He doesn't say, I'm in prison for my own sins. I'm in prison for Christ. Why is he in prison? Because he continues to lift up the name that is above every name. He continues to preach the gospel, even told when he's instructed and commanded to not to talk about Jesus, he continues to talk about Jesus. He says that my imprisonment is for Christ and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What is the Apostle Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is saying by me being in prison is no accident and in here I could complain and whine and cry but I understand that God is sovereign and he's using my imprisonment for a greater good. Yeah. 
And what is the greater good? To extend the kingdom. To encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ. To advance the gospel beyond what we could ever possibly think or imagine. So, I give that as an example, a biblical example of suffering for the name of Christ justly. Justly. It's not for personal attitudes. It's not for arrogance or pride. It's not for sinful decisions. So, which one are we today? How then shall we live in an ungodly world as Christians? And here it is in verse 23. Read with me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus doesn't give a suggestion. Jesus actually gives a command. And the command is this. To have joy. To rejoice in that day. Jesus commands his people to have gladness in their heart in that day of suffering for him. So when we think that I can't have joy in my heart because of my difficult circumstance, Jesus says you can. You can. That you can have joy and gladness in the day of suffering. And he also says you can leap for joy. Now, if you want to go skipping in the foyer of the church because you love Jesus, great. But I think it's more than that. It's because we believe in Jesus that should cause a positive action. So to the world, this sounds weird that we're blessed when we're being persecuted. However, the object of Christian joy is not our difficult circumstances not our difficult situations, but in Jesus Christ. The object of our joy is Jesus Christ. Sadly, as Christians, we let our difficult circumstances determine how we react. Somebody say amen, because that's true. We let situations dictate how we operate as Christians. But Jesus says we can have joy. The direct object of our joy is Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say your reward is great in heaven. This gives us the impression of something financial or economical. Maybe gold, silver, and diamonds, but that's not the goal. The Christian reward is much more than finances. Much more than finances and materialism. The reward of the Christian is Christ. There's coming a day, dear Christian, when we're face to face with our God and Maker. For all of eternity. You don't have to deal with sin anymore. You don't have to deal with struggles anymore. You don't have to deal with people persecuting you anymore. You don't have to deal with trials and tribulations. On that day, we are face to face with Christ. For all of eternity. Our salvation has come full circle. We have Christ. He is our king. And we are his servants. He is ours eternally. Face to face. 
And Jesus goes on to say, For so their fathers did to the prophets. That's just kind of a weird line if you read it at face value. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, if you read the Old Testament properly, the prophets of God have always been persecuted by an ungodly culture and people. So don't be surprised when you're persecuted for Christ. Don't be surprised at all. So, there's a day that's coming for all of us who are in Christ. There's a day that's coming when our weeping will be turned to joy. Where our hunger will be satisfied. And our poverty we shall see ourselves in the kingdom of God. That day is coming. Because in that day, not only does it mean that these things will happen, but ultimately that means that judgment day is coming. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So when we think that we should react in vengeance, or you know, a hide of flesh, a pound of flesh for a pound of flesh because they offended me. They hurt me. They disrespected me. No matter what you think you can do to people who hurt you, God is the perfect judge. And God will deal with those people on that day. That's what it's referring to. Judgment day is coming, and God will vindicate each and every one of his saints. And he will do it perfectly. Because he's a good and gracious, all-knowing, all-wise God. Our mourning will be turned into joy. So when the world mistreats us, keep in the back of our minds, God is going to make this right. I don't have to react sinfully. I don't have to do anything sinfully. God is going to make this right on that day. Therefore, when we suffer... Do we think of our suffering as just us? Woe is me. Or do we think of our suffering and our trials and tribulations as this is an honor and a privilege to suffer for Christ, the one who lived and died for me? How do we think about suffering? Because one is biblical and one is ungodly. We must think of our suffering in terms of it's an honor and a privilege because the king gave his life for me. And the Lord will make all things right. In our suffering, God doesn't call us to just bear with it. Just grind it out, dear Christian. Grind it out on earth. You'll be fine. No. Jesus says, you're not just simply called to suffering and just bear with it, but you're also to triumph in it. That's the purpose of joy. We can have joy in difficult circumstances. Whether we have cancer, whether we have money, whether we have food, whether we have shelter and clothing, we're to rejoice and to leap with joy for our reward in heaven is great. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 14. I want to remind us of this because this is very important. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul goes into a city to preach the gospel. He is dragged out of the city and they stone him to death. At least what the people think, he's dead. 
The very next day, the Apostle Paul goes back into the city, which he shared the gospel in, and he preaches the gospel even more. Is this man crazy? Is he a lunatic? Is he psychotic? What, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? Actually, what's right with him is Jesus saved him. And he loves Jesus. That's what's right with him. And it says this in verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. With many tribulations. So why do we think that we can bypass adversity in this life? With many tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God. You know, in Spurgeon's life, he was depressed by many things. People would criticize him about his preaching. They would criticize him about his ministry. They would criticize Spurgeon about many things. And what a lot of people don't realize is he was depressed. He was depressed. And so his sweet Christian wife wanted to encourage him. And she would take out a piece of paper and a pencil, and she would write in old English, large script, a certain verse. And she posted this paper with these verses on the ceiling. Why? Because she wanted to saturate the mind of her husband every morning and every night. And what verse did she write? 2 Timothy 3.12 Everyone who lives a righteous life will be persecuted. Everyone who lives a righteous life will be persecuted. I wish more of us did that. That we would write this verse down and put it in our car, put it in our mirror, put it on our ceiling. Because those days are here. Those days have been here. Those days will be here until Jesus comes back. And then in that day, he'll make things right. But those who live a righteous life will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. So Christians are blessed when their lifestyles are contrary to the world's ways. Point number two, Christians will be in horror when they embrace the world's ways. Really, point number two is the opposite of point number one. Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Again, the word woe means horror or disaster. It's literally the reversal of the previous verses. They're no longer blessed. They're actually cursed. Why? Because they're disobedient. Because they have forgotten their first love. It's important to understand Jesus is not condemning all the rich all the satisfied, all the joyful, and all the well-liked people in the world. Jesus is not condemning that. What Jesus is condemning is all of those who are self-righteous, self-reliant, prideful, and ungenerous. That's what Jesus is condemning. He is condemning full force all those who are prideful and self-reliant 
he goes on to say that the rich, monetarily, they've received all their blessings in this life and no more. Jesus even says, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world, but what? Loses his own soul. Money is not the root of all evil, it's the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's the test for many of us daily. But Jesus says the rich, they've received their reward in this life, and nothing more will they receive in the next. Those who are satisfied, they'll be hungry. We understand the idea, we eat a good meal, and the next morning we feel like we haven't eaten a meal in 24 to 48 hours. We're hungry and famished. And we're hungry and we're satisfied, and we're hungry and we're satisfied. But Jesus says, those who are satisfied, they're going to be hungry again. It's going to be a dire situation for them. Those who are laughing now and enjoying the life that they have now, they're going to mourn and weep. There's a spiritual side to all of this. Everything has been reversed because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. So, when we think about this, those who do not realize their spiritual poverty, but rely on their own achievement, will, will reap disaster in the end. Those who do not realize their spiritual poverty, but rely on their own achievement, will reap disaster in the end. So as I conclude, it's not a sin to be poor, and it's not a sin to be rich. But the temptation for the rich is that they put their hope in finances and their heart is taken away from God. The temptation for the poor is that they would covet or be jealous of the rich and not work and steal. So whether we are rich or poor, there's one thing God has called us to. He's called us unto his, his self through the gospel of grace. He's called us to a holy gospel, and he expects us to be obedient to such. One reformer says it like this, The supreme blessing in which one can truly know the goodness of God is not temporal possessions, but the eternal blessing that God has called us to in his holy gospel. He goes on to say, To someone who properly appreciates this blessing, meaning the one who properly appreciates the gospel, everything else is trifle. Though he is poor and sick and despised and burdened with adversity, he sees that he keeps more than he has lost. Do you hear that? He keeps more than what he has lost. If he has no money and goods, he knows nevertheless that he has a gracious God. If his body is sick, he knows that he is called to eternal life. If we're sick with some sort of terminal disease, our hope is not in this world. Our lives are but a mist. It appears for a while and then vanisheth away. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. He says if his body is sick, he knows that he is called to eternal life. Praise God. His heart has this constant consolation. And it's this, only a short time and everything will be better. Our lives are but a thimble in God's great ocean of mercy. And there's coming a time where our lives will be like this. 
here today, gone tomorrow. It's only for a short time we're on this earth. And guess what? When we're all promoted to glory, like Miss Murtis and Bob Voth, everything will be much, much better. We will be in all eternity. Our salvation has come in full when we're face to face with our God and Maker. He will make all things new. May we all be like Agur, the author in Proverbs, who says this in Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. I pray that this is our prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What is the author saying? He said, Lord, just give me enough so I don't forget you. Aren't we obsessed with materialism many times in our lives? If we could just build bigger barns, life will be better. If we could have more hay in the barn, life will be better. No, the author of Proverbs says, Lord, just give me enough so I don't forget you and turn my back on you. That should be our prayer. So what is our Christian profile? What is our Christian character? How are we to live as Christians in an ungodly world? Are we yes men and yes women? When the world says, hey, why don't you join us for this event, and it's an ungodly, sinful event, and we say, yeah, I'll be there. I'm here to support you. Do we use any godly discernment at all regarding situations like that? Yes, we should be well-liked by outsiders. But I want to caution us and warn us, our goal is not universal popularity. Our goal is not universal popularity. So are we swimming with the tide or against the tide? Are we hated for Jesus? Are we excluded for Jesus? Do we suffer for Jesus? Are we rejected for Jesus? If you are, if we are, brother and sister in Christ, we are blessed. It's a whole different way of thinking. But it's true because Jesus says it's true. We are blessed. So sermon in a sentence. Christians who intentionally depend upon God and suffer for the name of Christ are blessed. I want to encourage you, dear sister, Dear brother in Christ, our suffering is not in vain. Our suffering is not accidental. And our suffering actually conforms us to the image of God or image of Christ, and we're more dependent upon God than ever. All suffering is not bad. Actually, in God's sovereignty, he uses suffering for your good. And we can have joy in this. And if we are to suffer for Christ, let us not suffer for our sins, but suffer for the name of God. Of Christ, the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, that we can trust your word wholeheartedly. Lord, we do suffer in this world many times in many ways. And many times, O God, we've reacted sinfully or even evilly. Father, help us to have joy in our hearts. Help us, O oh God, to trust in you even more. Help us to lift up the name that is above every name. 
You are worthy, O God, of all glory and honor and praise. We owe you our lives. We pray you would help us in our time of need. In Christ we pray. Amen.